0: You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda. Uh, Coming in from New York City for actually what may be one of the last times on this show, I am making a move soon to Washington, D.C. Um, But I am delighted to have with me today a special guest to talk through a few issues uh, pertaining to the U.S.-South Korea alliance and South Korean foreign policy and national security more generally. Uh, I'm very glad to welcome my friend uh, Carl Friedhoff today, who's joining me from Chicago. He's the Marshall and Bhutan Fellow for Asia Studies at the Chicago Council. Carl, how's it going today?
1: Good, Anki. Thank you for having me.
0: My pleasure. Uh, so for listeners who don't know Carl, he's uh, he's an astute observer of politics on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, he's, he spent time living and working in South Korea, works a lot on issues related to the U.S.-ROK alliance, uh, intra-Korean issues, um, U.S. national security in Northeast Asia. And I'm glad to have him on today because we do have some news, first of all, uh, in the U.S.-ROK alliance context, which is that after uh, several years of what I frankly consider to be unnecessary in fighting within the alliance during the Trump administration, um, President Joe Biden's team very quickly reached um, a final special measures agreement with um, South Korea. And for listeners that don't know what that is, that is the agreement that decides um, what South Korea, or rather the balance of burden sharing uh, for the sustenance of U.S. presence on the Korean Peninsula. So we'll talk through a little bit about um, what the conclusion of this um, deal means uh, for the alliance. But more broadly, you know, we're also going to take stock of, uh, we're going to preview a few things. The, pre- the big preview here is the upcoming visit by U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin uh, to not only Korea, but uh, also Japan. But we'll focus mostly on the Korea aspect for today. And then finally, we're actually at an interesting sort of milestone in South Korean President Moon Jae-in's presidency. Uh, South Korea has single-term presidencies, and Moon is looking at his final year in office ahead of the elections next year. So just wanted to reflect a bit on, uh, first of all, I mean Moon Jae-in's legacy uh, on the peninsula and his foreign policy, but also what he's hoping to get done over the last year. And uh, Carl, I really can't think of a better guest uh, to have on to talk through all these issues. So uh, really, thanks for taking the time today. So enough for me. Uh, Carl, can you tell us a little bit about, first of all, just d- describe this SMA agreement. What exactly was agreed to between the two sides? Um, and what does it represent for the alliance at this uh, at this uh, inflection point?
1: Right. So the, the final agreement uh, comes down to South Korea doing a thirteen point nine percent increase in it, its past contribution. So it looks like it's going to be about uh, one billion uh, U.S. dollars. It includes a 6. I think it's 6.5% increase for paying kind of Korean workers who work on the U.S. base. Uh, When the when the agreement failed to be reached in in the previous term, they had to furlough something like more than 4,000 workers who work there. Uh, So this will help cover them um, uh, from now on in the future. I think there's a a, a part of that agreement is that there won't be furloughs into the future. This is going to set that aside as well. And the other part is a 7.1% increase uh, in defense spending or that it's tied to defense spending that that will go into into the SMA. Um, So so now that this is reached, it's going to kind of allow uh, South Korea and the US to start to focus less on internal alliance management and then shift towards external things that they're they're both focusing on. Um, But one of the interesting parts that came out of this, uh, I thought was there was an interview from the chief negotiator on the Korean side, and really kind of put the, the Trump administration uh, a little bit a, a, su- a subtle subtweet if if it were issued in the form of a tweet saying that you know when we came, when we arrived at this we didn't we didn't negotiate increases we instead we looked at what needed to be covered and that's how we arrived at this number you know they said in the past that South Korea was willing to to increase 13% but when i talked to people who were working not as negotiators but working on the side as this part of this task force to determine what South Korea should contribute now, there was broad recognition that South Korea needed to pay more, but it was never going to be $5 billion because their math was, we want to look at what needs to be contributed and what needs to be covered that will determine our contribution. But the US side under under the Trump administration was doing in the reverse saying, well, we want this much money. How are we going to get to that? And there was no real math uh, add up to that. So the South Koreans, I think, are are fairly happy with with where it ended up. And I think uh, it looks like a, a good deal for everyone.
0: Yeah, so that's um, you know that's uh, the next thing to talk about here. I mean, clearly there was friction within the alliance, um, whether it appeared in public or not, whether we read about it in the papers or not. Uh, there was definitely unease over the way in which the Trump administration was um, making demands of the South Korean side. You mentioned $5 billion. Uh, For listeners, that was the figure, uh, that was the sticker price that the Trump administration was effectively um, charging the South Koreans. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the Trump administration, the Biden administration, couldn't have more different Visions of what U.S. alliances mean and what they do for American national security. Um, But, Carl, I wanted to sort of use this as an opportunity to draw out some of the work I know you've done on public opinion in South Korea. Tell us a little bit about the politics of the U.S. ROK alliance uh, on the Korean Peninsula now. Um, Conservatives and progressives, of course, have their own different views of the alliance. What have you found over um, your work over the last few years in terms of how the Trump administration's political approach to the Moon Jae-in government on, uh, on the SMA has sort of fed into perceptions of the United States as an ally for South Koreans?
1: Yeah, so there are a couple questions in there and there are a couple different way, uh, ways to approach views of the United States. The first is just views of the United States overall. And I think for the first time, in a very long time, maybe ever excluding a short time during the the Bush administration in 2002, that net favorable views of the United States turned negative. And so there were more negative views uh, of the United States than, than favorable views, but now I suspect that that's going to reverse quickly and we'll go back to seeing favorability of the United States being kind of the top uh, even when, when compared to China, North Korea, Japan. Of course, not a tough group to be the top of uh, in that neighborhood for for many South, South Koreans. But there's also views of the alliance. Um, and views of the alliance actually weren't affected by the Trump administration. Um, when we ask about uh, South Koreans, if they support or oppose the alliance with the United States, it's still in the last poll we did was 90% support. And so those, and it's been 90 to 95% support for probably... Uh, ever since I've been doing polling there, which is starting in 2011. So that's been uh, really, really uh, steady. Uh, the, the interesting thing was that there's been a lot of concern uh, that this SMA deal would touch on a lot of sensitive issues for the Korean public, especially the way that the Trump administration was going about it, making this very coercive, saying that if you don't, you you have to pay us or else, and then also threatening troop withdrawal at the same time. It's real concern that this would draw kind of on Korean nationalism and and lead to this this flare up of anti American sentiment, or at least a a downgrading of views of the Alliance, but that never really happened. Right. Um, Even, even when we looked at awareness of the SMA among the public, even though awareness that was something like 60 66% so relatively high awareness of it, even people who said they were very aware of it, their views of the Alliance didn't really change at all. So this idea that, that you know, it's maybe, maybe a bit scary to say that, well, we can just go around extorting people and it's not going to, to affect views of the alliance, somewhat dangerous lesson to draw from that. And there's probably a limit to, to that. Uh, the one thing that would have probably affected views of the alliance were if uh, the Trump administration had followed through on threats to withdraw troops uh, from the U.S., now, I'm not saying that we always have to stick at 28,500 troops. Um, there are certain discussions to be had where troop partial downs can take place. That's been done uh, over time and usually every 13 to 20 years by my count. And now we're in the 15th year. But it has to be done in a certain way and in coordination. And the Trump administration certainly wasn't thinking about doing that. Uh, so any kind of withdrawal like that, especially one that's uncoordinated and unannounced, uh, the, the data would suggest that that's where we would see a major turn uh, in in terms of Korean attitudes on the alliance.
0: And so, you know, what exactly, uh, you know, insofar as the U.S. is concerned on the Korean peninsula, what is South Korean public opinion most sensitive to in terms of changes in U.S. policy? You know, my sense was that uh, the change in diplomacy with North Korea between 2017 and 2018 was... A big turning point. I mean, certainly for President Moon's approval ratings in South Korea after the Panmunjom summit, for instance, is that uh, is that in your view the more kind of salient point for uh, perceptions of the United States on the peninsula?
1: Yeah, the the way that it's going to uh, approach North Korea can can be a turning point. But I, I'd also note that the the South Korean public is really pragmatic in terms of North Korea. Yeah. You know, for a lot of us that follow things on the peninsula and follow North Korea more closely um there's kind of this this expectation that well north korea is the biggest security threat therefore the public must be quite sensitive to that and in reality it's not all that sensitive you know essentially if north korea is blowing things up and and killing south korean soldiers or sinking its ships uh the south korean public prefers a hard line right when when imeon bak had its hard line out uh on uh the imeon bak administration had it had its hard line on on north korea public was fairly supportive because of the actions north korea had done and when the, the Park Geun-hye administration came in, um, I think we ran a question saying, would you like the the previous line, like the previous policy on theory, would you like it to be even more hard line? And it was something like, it was a majority that said either what it is now or harder, mm-hmm. uh, like a more strict line. And so you know, that's, that was in response to North Korean actions. But if North Korea decides that it wants to talk, there are no provocations, there are negotiations ongoing. Of course, the, the South Korean public would much prefer that. Um, so they they want to pursue that. I, I think the, the the public opinion is going to turn not so much on on how the United States is treating North Korea or or that. It's mostly how they perceive the United States treating South Korea itself. And so any attempt, or not attempt, but any effort that kind of, include South Korea as, as a partner uh, and and as a full partner and perhaps leading some of those, those uh, aspects of negotiations is always going to be popular.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, let's now change gears a little bit and uh, look forward to the near future. Uh, so we're anticipating a trip by U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin. Uh, to South Korea uh, as part of a broader tour of the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, You know, both men will be representing a president who ran very clearly on a platform to put alliances front and center in the way in which the United States conducts its affairs around the world. So this, I think this visit is going to be closely watched not only by, you know, uh, folks in East Asia, but, uh, you know, partners in Europe, uh, countries in Southeast Asia, I think will be an important sort of litmus test to see, you know, if the United States is, quote, back, as the Biden administration likes to say. So, uh, you know, we're anticipating an official announcement of the SMA deal during this trip. Uh, but what else is on the agenda here? I mean, there's a lot going on. Uh, you know, there's um continuity, roughly speaking, in U.S.-China relations. We're having a Quad leaders meeting just around the corner. That's probably going to be the topic of a future podcast. So keep, uh, you know, listeners should uh hopefully keep an eye on the on the episodes for that. But um, what else are you going to be looking for out of the uh, the Blinken and Austin visits to Seoul?
1: So on on the defense side i think there's going to be quite a bit of discussion over opcon transfer you know, this this transfer of wartime operational control um that's something you you asked the question at the beginning what does moon want to get done in his last year in office and opcon transfer is one of the big ones that he wants to get done before he leaves office in i think may
0: 2022 um, Can you just explain for our listeners uh, what the OpCon transfer issue is? Because it's a it's it's a little esoteric sometimes, and it's worth just clarifying what it means. In uh, practice.
1: Yeah, so it's basically who's going to to control Korean and U.S. troops on the peninsula. Right now, it's basically under, under U.S. command. So a U.S. commander would be controlling all of the troops there, and this would help transfer transferred over to. a a south korean commander and of course the first question is always well why would u.s troops serve under a south korean commander and to kind of nip that in the bud you know basically u.s troops have served under foreign commands since as far as i know since the boxer rebellion um at the turn like in in the turn of the 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 19th to the 20th century so it wouldn't be new uh in in terms of that um but to do this right it's not a not, not any certain litmus test, um, not, not on a timeline, but more of a means test. And right now, they're behind schedule. Uh, so in, in 2019, they completed the initial, uh, the initial operational capability uh, phase of this. Uh, and last year, they were supposed to do the full operational capability uh, phase of this, but that got delayed because they couldn't do the exercises that were supposed to be done uh, due, to, due to the pandemic. Uh, and then the last part of that is full mi- mission capability uh, testing. Um, so both of those things are going to be delayed. So on the defense side, I'm sure the South Koreans are going to be pushing for uh, for for the U.S. To, to try to speed that up and find ways to make this happen uh, before before the Moon administration leaves office. On the, the more diplomacy state-focused side, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of talk, obviously, about China, um, trying to harmonize Korea and, and U.S. policy, because so far, I think there's quite a bit of skepticism uh, throughout the U.S. and, and in, in the government itself about South Korea's position. And one of the things we often see come up is South Korea is going to tilt towards China, uh, that they may leave the United States Alliance and not offer to, to join uh, China, something that maybe we can discuss later. I'm highly, highly skeptical of, of that kind of thing uh, taking place. But I think those will be the two headline items. And of course, from the, from the South Korean side on, and the meetings with Blinken and with, with uh, Secretary Austin as well, that they'll be pushing on North Korea, mm-hmm. right? trying to push the U.S. into doing meetings earlier and at higher levels uh, to try to move that, that policy along so that Moon can, can have some sort of accomplishment before his term is up.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, something else that I'm going to be watching for, uh, so, you know, I mean, Tony Blinken has an interesting history in Northeast Asia, because when he was Deputy Sec- um, when he was deputy Secretary of State in the Obama administration, he was the point person for uh, trilateralism, uh, which Japan and South Korea held uh, regular meetings with his deputy foreign minister counterparts. Uh, and that sort of, you know, that ball got dropped during the Trump administration, which also coincided with probably the worst step in Japan-Korea relations uh, in decades. And so the Biden administration has taken a greater interest in trilateralism. There's already been movement. Um, how do you think that's going to go down in Seoul when Blinken inevitably raises the issue of promoting greater trilateral coordination with Japan? What are the what are the sensitivities there? Because I know the domestic politics of this in South Korea are obviously very touchy uh, for the Moon administration. But you do have pragmatists in South Korea who recognize that you know South Korea does have a lot to gain from um, becoming a more friendly trilateral partner. Uh, and the Japanese, of course, have to do their own part here. But what do you think um, that conversation is going to be like for Blinken?
1: I think it's going to be a little more open than we may be expecting, right, because um, we've already seen President Moon come out and say, well, this is in reference to the 2015 agreement uh, on on comfort women, even though he spent the early part of his presidency really trying to undermine it and, and perhaps seemingly withdraw from it. More recently, he said, well, we see that as an agreement between governments and saying it's basically still on the books and still active. You know, I think that was somewhat of an olive branch to say that, yeah, there might be a little flexibility on on the the part of korea to to revisit that and and perhaps push things forward um in terms of of pursuing trilateralism uh with japan but the other part i want to touch on on that is the sensitivity around the domestic politics of this you know it's something we talk about a lot and i wish we had uh, a better testing of this because because it's talked about so much but you know we'll, we'll hear people say that anytime that a korean Korean president is in trouble in terms of favorability ratings or politically, that they'll play the Japan card, um, you know, in terms of they'll do something to, to try to blame Japan, to try to shift the focus to, to Japan. And one of the big troubles for, for the, those of us who look at this through the, the lens of, of public opinion data is that it never shows up in the data, that there's any benefit at all, right? I mean, even Im Young-bak, I can't remember which year, but he actually landed on Dokdo Island. Right, that's like quite provocative. No other president has done that since, and I don't think anyone did that before. And we at the time we were running daily approval polls. Right. So every day we would get new data in on, on presidential approval. And I think he got maybe a four to five percentage point bump within the mar- I believe it was within the margin of error, and it disappeared within a week. So this idea that there is a Japan card to play and that 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 it is somehow distracting to the public or boosts their popularity not saying it's not there, but it's not in the data. Um, Mm -hmm. Anyway,
0: Uh, So let's, uh, you know, shift gears a little bit and talk about China, which is uh, obviously the elephant in the room and many conversations that Secretary Blinken has been having around the world uh, and certainly will be in Korea. Right. So President Moon, uh, of course, uh, you know, entered office um, with memories of China's unofficial sanctions campaign over the deployment of the THAAD missile defense system, very fresh in the South Korean public's mind. And uh, his new southern policy has been a very big part of sort of rebalancing South Korea's economic dependency away from China towards Southeast Asia, South Asia more broadly Um, And, you know, you already hinted at this a little bit about this notion uh, that certainly I think is a thing in Washington where, you know, neither of us are based, I will point out to listeners. (laughs) Um, But, uh, you know, this notion that uh, South Korea, for some reason, is lukewarm about... Uh, U.S. initiatives to counterbalance China is somehow going to drift into China's back pocket. Uh, so, tell us a little bit about you know we, the current state of play uh, in sort of you know circles in Seoul where um, these decisions are discussed and made, and you know these strategic conversations are happening. Uh, how 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 can we expect South Korea to sort of play its cards on China through the Biden years?
1: You know. I- We've seen a little bit of this already with South Korea beginning to hint that they're willing to join the quad and, and make it the the quad plus that's happened recently. And again, that's, that's a new push by the Moon administration to try to pull the US in, into advancing probably uh, its interest, South Korean interest on North Korea, right, giving a little bit to, to try to, to get a little bit on, on that side. But You know, I I think it's it's a misreading of Korea to say one of the things we often often hear is that Japan and South Korea have different perceptions of the threat of China. Um, Again, I'm not so sure that's the case. Now, do they want to handle that threat differently? Absolutely. But I don't think that means that they have different, totally different perceptions of of the threat. Um, You know, South Korea is much more economically vulnerable to, to the threat of, of, of China and, and its economy because of, I think, something like 15% of South Korean GDP uh, is, is based on, on trade with China. That's that's obviously uh, a huge number. But I think there's going to be a little bit more willingness on, on the Korean side to engage in this because it wants to make advances on North Korea. Now, is it going to sit down and you know suddenly, like the U.S. would like to, to, for it to clearly choose a side? no, that's not, that's not going to happen. But there is, you know, you mentioned this new Southern policy. I think that's a really key part uh, of how the U.S. is gonna have to engage and perhaps pursue trilateralism uh, because everyone has these interests in Southeast Asia. Japan's very active there. Uh, Korea is, is Korea's getting more active there in terms of business. And the U.S. is, I think, uh, there in the South China Sea, but hopefully moving a little more to focus on, on the land and, and the people. So I think that's one point where this trilateralism uh, could come through. Um, you know the the moon administration is often, in my view, tarred with this label of you know trying to sell the country either either to North Korea or or to China. But I'd point out that it's been these progressive presidents that have really focused on building up South Korea's Navy. right? One of the the things that the u s. is going to need um, if it's going to come into a more fierce competition is is naval assets. And, you know, it's not by accident that it's the progressive presidents that are doing that, because that's what happens when you are not going to designate North Korea as your number one enemy. You're not going to focus on land forces. Instead, you're going to redirect your spending towards the Navy. So Noh Mu Hyun and Moon Jae-in, um, whatever, they're, they're, whatever people may disagree with them on, you know, clearly they've spent money on the Navy. And in the long run, that's going to be a benefit to to the United States and the alliance as well.
0: Right, I mean the five-year uh, intermediate-term national defense plan that the Moon administration put out last year is, is frankly, eye-popping when you look at it with any uh, with any uh, degree of you mm-hmm. know um, nuance. I mean, it's it's really a wide-ranging modernization plan. This idea that South Korean progressives don't take defense policy seriously is just not true. Yeah, um, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I think that might actually be worth a future episode to talk a little bit about that. I often find that South Korea's um, indigenous defense investments tend to fly under the radar a little bit. Uh, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about North Korea. I'm certainly guilty of that. Um, so to, uh, you know, to close out, uh, we've already sort of hit on some of the themes here. But uh, look, we're, we're recording this podcast on March 11th. South Korea is going to have an election on March 9th, 2022. So 364 full days remain. Um, What's President Moon looking to get done when it comes to um, foreign policy and and, and national security? Uh, You know, we've already hit on the new Southern policy, uh, OPCON transfer. uh, But, you know, he's been talking quite a lot about uh, institutionalizing inter-Korean progress, uh, which is, you know, 2020 has been, frankly, not a banner year for inter-Korean diplomacy. Uh, But what else is on the agenda?
1: So I think those are actually the big things. There are are probably... um... More important or, or smaller uh, domestic issues, but on on the foreign policy side, you know he's going to want to yeah uh, kind of formalize these North Korea um, interactions. I think that will be really tough. And even if he if he formalizes it, there's always a chance it'll be rolled back or blown up um, as the North Koreans uh, see fit. Opcon transfer is going to be a tough sell uh, for him. But you know ultimately I think he's going to want to try to, to bring the. US on side with the South Korean ability to to not choose a side right um, you know to kind of be this intermediary and I think if, if he can get especially that that latter part done, um, I think that would be a big achievement although it's really difficult to judge that achievement um, because it's going to be so fluid uh, over time
0: mm-hmm well, Carl, thanks a lot for joining me today for uh, a, you know, this was actually a remarkably, we covered quite a lot of ground in, in very little time. So I, I really appreciate uh, you joining me and taking the time today.
1: Thanks for the invitation, Ankit. Great to join you.
0: Pleasure. Hope to have you back soon. For listeners, if you like the show, but you haven't yet subscribed, please do so so you can catch up with future episodes, including an episode on the upcoming Quad Leader Summit. And finally, if you've been a listener for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, please do so. It really helps get the word out about the show and we really do appreciate it. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back very soon with more on the Asia Geopolitics podcast.